Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can Hi, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Friday, October 31st, also known as Halloween. And uh, this is episode 84 of the Survival Podcast, which is always is one man's view of the changing world and the changing economic times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And as always, I'm dictating this podcast during my commute, 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. And this morning drive is kind of my conversation with my audience, which is my conversation with my friends, given, as always, as one man's opinion. So if you don't like something you hear, feel free to object to it. Uh, That's what it's all about here at the Survival Podcast, because I do learn things from my audience, and I do learn sometimes that I'm actually wrong about things, and I'm not an arrogant man, so I'm willing to admit it when I'm wrong. That's kind of what I'm going to start out with today. And it's not really about being wrong, but maybe just being a little bit too harsh on people that didn't ask for me to be harsh on them. And that is our fellow fellow listeners out there that are from New Zealand, the Kiwis of the world. Um, Yesterday I talked about a guy that posted on the blog, and several of you guys got on the blog and you lambasted him pretty good, and I think you guys did a good job with it. And I understand your sentiments, and I agree with them 100%. Uh, I kind of gave my sentiments toward him yesterday, and I think I was maybe just a little bit too hard on, you know, calling the the island of New Zealand a socialist nation. I think it is. It's just that it's, I don't know that it's much more socialist than we are, uh, and some of the social programs they run there are a lot easier to run at a national level when you're running a country with 4 million people in it versus running a country with 300 plus million people in it like we have here. So uh, my, my point is I've known quite a few people from New Zealand that I've had the pleasure to meet over time, and they're, they're, they're some of the hardest working, most independent people uh, that I know of, and did a little research yesterday on how their government works and their structure works, and I got a comment uh, from, a, from a Kiwi who was actually quite, uh, quite positive with his comment, basically saying, hey, whoever this guy was, most of us aren't like that. We kind of leave people's politics to themselves and stay out of other people's business, and uh, you know, I, I got back in touch with him, and he read what this guy said and said, I'd have been pretty PO'd myself, so there was no conflict there or anything. It just brought it to my attention. And when I looked up the last election in New Zealand, I actually found that their national party, which is akin to our Republican Party, picked up an awful lot of seats last time. And uh, the country, while under the control of the Labor Party, which is you know like, like our Democrats, is actually moving to their right. And it's kind of weird that a lot of countries out there, uh, even in the most socialist havens of the world, are starting to move right, uh, while our nation, which is supposed to be the bastion of capitalism and free markets, is moving to the left. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's a little bit concerning for me, but that's not what today's show is about. I just wanted to clear the air with that. Just thought, you know, if anybody from New Zealand listened to that show and it was their first show, they might have got the wrong idea. So hopefully they stuck around and listened to a second one, and you understand that I value my international audience uh, as much as I value uh, my audience that happens to be in the same state that I am, which is Texas. Uh, so thank you for tuning in from all over the world. It's really humbling that I have people in New Zealand and Australia and Great Britain and Mexico and Belize, uh, for example, that I've received 
received emails from recently that actually listen to my show. It's a, it's a very humbling thing. So I, I do value all of you guys. And, you know, some of you guys live in socialist countries and I have a pretty negative view of socialism. That doesn't mean I have a negative view of you as an individual. So please remember that. Now, today's show topic is going to add on to two other shows that we did this week. Winter is for gardening. This is going to be Winter is for Gardening Part 3. And the reason I decided to do this show is because I've been planning out my next beds. I've been thinking about the fact, well, I didn't really talk about how to actually prep a bed, uh, what to do when you do it, and that maybe I should do that. And then the other thing is that I've gotten quite a few suggestions by email and on comments and in the forum of other ways to help get plants through winter or early spring that uh, I actually knew about but didn't cover. And it just seems incomplete right now. And then some of my listeners started sending me material uh, to do more on winter gardening and I haven't had a chance to go through all of it yet but I've picked up a few things already and I want to add those things in. So we'll probably actually be doing a winter is for gardening 4, 5, and 6 at some point. It won't be next week. We're going to we are going to talk about the election on uh, on Wednesday I guarantee you because it will have a new president we're going to have to talk politics that day because it will be the biggest story in the land. Uh, and I don't know what else we're going to do next week. I'm going to try to get this uh, generator show done for you next week. Uh, I just want to do that show right, but let's go into today's topic, which again is uh, winter is for gardening, and uh, let's start out with, you know, and this is not just for winter, but as I said earlier this week, if you if you want to pick a time of the year to be outside with a shovel digging a garden bed, this is usually a hell of a lot better of a time to do it uh, than maybe May when the temperature's in the 90s or the middle of the summer when it's maybe in some parts of the world 100 degrees outside. Uh, right now, for instance, even here in Texas, uh, I'm looking at a temperature of 61 degrees. Now, 61 degrees is a pretty comfortable temperature uh, for, for the state of Texas. So this would be a good time to be at home with my hot cup of coffee and uh, digging a garden bed. I'd, be, I'd probably be happier than I am right now driving off to my office uh, if that's what I was doing. So it's just a good time of year to do it. But when you, when you dig fresh ground into a bed, what is the actual process? So even though we're talking about it from doing it in the winter standpoint, the process is, is similar uh, no matter what time of year with just a couple key differences that I'll try to point out for you. Well, the first thing, obviously, that you have to do is you have to figure out, uh, well, exactly what are the dimensions and locations of my bed going to be. Now, one of the reasons I like to do this in winter is if you find the sunniest spot in your yard for your beds right now, uh, those spots are going to have an abundance of sunlight uh, during the summertime, because right now the sun is lower in the sky, unless you're listening to me from the southern hemisphere, you're going into your summer and you're like, man, this is all whacked out, we'll just flip it around and think six months in advance, uh, and, and you'll be in the same scenario here. So it's a good time to find that sunny spot, and that's the most important thing for your gardens, is making sure they get at least six to eight hours of sun a day, at least at the time of the year when that's even available to them. Once you have that picked out, again, I'll talk real briefly on the dimensions that make the most sense. To me, you want to go with wide beds. You'll be able to grow more uh, in, a, in a more condensed space if you use wider beds. And as I said earlier this week, to me, kind of the minimum dimension that I'm using now going forward, and I didn't always do this and it was a mistake, is at least three feet wide. 
And uh, kind of a maximum dimension for me on those beds is about four feet wide. And that's just due to the length of my arms. I'm not a short guy, but I'm not a tall guy either. I'm about 5'11". And uh, your goal with a raised bed is to be able to do everything you need to do to the plants and the soil within it without ever stepping in it ever again after the day you plant it. Now that's kind of a lofty goal in some situations. You're going to have to get in that bed, uh, but if you can avoid it, do so. And what you'll end up with eventually is soil that's that's very loosely compacted, but it's got good structure. If you do everything that I'm going to talk about today, uh, in a couple seasons you can end up with amazing soil, even in areas where the soil's not really that good. Okay, because just building a raised bed and bringing in topsoil and organic matter isn't going to really get you where you need to be. It'll get you okay kind of for your first season, but over time you can really build those garden beds into a true asset for your family. And that's how I see this. This is like an investment, and it's something that compounds over the years if you do it right. And it all starts, you know, by getting off on the right foot, so to speak. So once you've found your area, you know, you want to mark out your beds. And I know that some people are really fussy and they want their beds perfectly uh, rectangular or square or whatever they're doing. And uh, I try to be pretty precise with that myself. Uh, there's ways to do it with string. I'll, I'll find a link and post a way that you can do it where you end up with an absolutely perfect rectangle uh, outline with string. I'm not that, um, let's call it anal about it. Uh, I use a tape measure, and I make sure that, uh, you know, I've got the right dimensions on the front and the back side of the, uh, the beds. And uh, from there on, I just kind of do the best I can by eye. And I use a level with my timbers to make sure that my timbers are level. And that's about all I need. You can be as precise as you want. But once you have that area marked out, if you're going to make raised beds that actually have walls, you'll you'll uh, take a kind of a different approach, I guess, than if you're going to make raised beds where you just kind of heap things up. But overall, you're still going to need to figure out exactly what you want done and mark it off. Um, I use landscape timbers for my raised beds, so I kind of build them kind of the log cabbage, uh, log cabin, log cabbage, I don't know what that's about, log cabin dovetail approach at the end, where one end overlaps and then the other end overlaps. Maybe I'll post a picture of one of mine someday for you to see what I'm talking about there. Uh, but if you do it with like, let's say, two by eights, you could actually just go ahead and build the raised bed, um, lay it on the ground exactly where you want it, make sure it's all square and true, mark the edges around the outside of it and, and, and instead of using a string and then trying to build the bed on top of it. It's kind of up to you at that point. Once you get that area marked out, though, now the tough part comes because the first thing you need to do is, is bust the sod loose. And if you've got a good quality hard sod grass down, it's a lot harder than if you have kind of a barren, you know, broken area. But if you have good sod, you're going to want to save it. Uh, you're either going to want to save it to compost it if you're doing this in the summer. If you're doing it in the winter, it's going to become part of your bed. So what you'll begin doing is you'll cut the sod. Uh, you want to cut nice straight edges. Use a straight uh, a straight spade, a uh, straight edge shovel, uh, whatever you want to call it, to, uh, to cut your bed out. And cut small, you know, maybe one foot by one foot square pieces of your sod. It's not that critical, but some kind of average size dimension. And you'll want to cut as, as shallow as you can against the roots and try to pull it up just like you're making sod to go lay like you see it at a garden store. Set all your sod aside. And then the next thing that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to break the subsoil down. Um, and again, this is for raised beds. This is not for in the ground beds, so to speak. So you're going to, I'm assuming that when I'm telling you all this, that you're going to be bringing in topsoil and things like that. If you're not, you're going to have to do a lot more working into the soil than what we're talking about here. But what you're going to do next is you're going to go ahead and take something like a, a garden fork or a pitch fork or a broad fork, and 
and work that at least eight inches deep into the soil. And you don't, if you're going to build raised beds, you don't really need to turn that soil. But what you need to do is you need to break it loose at least eight inches down. So you can do that simply by inserting the fork into the soil and rocking it back and forth. If you want to turn it a little bit, that's fine. But your big goal here is to make sure that that soil opens up so that it's going to be willing to receive water and nutrients and roots from above. Once that's done, you probably need to go ahead and either construct or place your uh, walls around your uh, your soil if you, that's indeed your plan to put put walls around your beds. And once the walls are constructed or if you just place the structure around there, the next thing you need to do is take all that sod and uh, turn it upside down and lay it grass side down, top soil side up across the entire bottom of your raised bed. Then get some good compost. And if you don't have a compost bin yet, go out and buy it. Don't don't skip this step. This is important. Put down about a two-inch deep layer of compost, all right, on, on top of that. Then go and get good quality topsoil and come up to about uh, two inches maybe from the top of where uh, you want your eventual bed to be filled in with topsoil and then add good organic matter and more compost to the top and turn it into the soil a little bit. One of the other things you might consider this time of year, especially if you're not going to plant the bed right away, you're going to go ahead and do this and get it ready for the spring. Right now there's probably leaves all over your yard. Rake up a whole bunch of leaves. Oak leaves are particularly good and mix them into your soil. A lot of people take their leaves and they put them into a compost pit and then they realize the leaves just don't break down well. Leaves are an okay brown to add to your compost pile, uh, but they have a really slow breakdown time. They tend to compact and when they compact compact, a different type of bacteria goes to work, they start to stink, and it takes a really long time for them to turn into rich compost, where if you use things like straw and cornstalk and other things like that that are shredded up, your composting will go a lot better. So working your leaves directly into the soil is often a better way to do things. Now, this is another belief that I have that's actually really good for your soil. Once you've done that, your bed's kind of ready to go. Give it about two weeks to rest so that some of this organic matter that you've worked in there has time to do its thing and some of the uh, you know worms and things like that have time to find your garden bed. And make sure you keep it damp, not wet, but damp during this period as well. Uh, that'll attract worms and nematodes and other good things into your garden. But if you're going to put it to sleep, what you can do at this point is go get yourself a layer of leaves about an inch deep. Cover the entire surface of the bed in those leaves. Now lay down newspaper several layers deep on top of that. And then on top of there, lay down another type of mulch, something like straw uh, or, or something like that. And put the bed kind of to, to, to sleep, the, the, the bed kind of to sleep for the winter that way. And that will hold a lot of moisture into the ground. And by spring, when you go to work that soil and uh, pull that top layer off, you'll be amazed at how much worm activity you'll have in that soil. And worms are the friend of the gardener. And this is why you really, like if you're a rototiller guy and you till your beds three or four times a year, you really need to consider whether that's what you want to do or not. If you keep adding compost a couple times a year, you work your soil a little bit by hand, and you don't step in your beds, you won't need to till your soil because all the uh, the soil critters will do the job for you of keeping channels and keeping things from being compacted. And the thing about worms is they, you know, go ahead and they'll deposit castings in there, which are good sources of nitrogen uh, and other minerals and nutrients. But their very activity level kind of coats the soil with their slime. And over time, it forms little crumbles, and your soil turns into little crumbles. 
and that is the perfect medium for growing your plants. It's, it's highly absorbent. It holds water well without getting too wet. It doesn't compact when you water it, and uh, it is the perfect environment for your plants. So that's kind of how to set up the perfect winter bed. And if you've been setting up garden beds and you've had okay results, but it's never really been that good for you. You've never, like, even by your second season, it's just not producing these big, lush gardens like you see pictures of on the internet or on garden shows. These are probably the steps that you're missing. And if you take that approach and then you do good companion planting, and maybe we'll do a show about that as we get closer to spring, which things to plant together, which things to, to keep separated from each other. Uh, and you do things like bring in some plants that will help repel pests. Uh, marigolds help repel pests. Garlic and onions planted with the plants that they're okay to plant with help get rid of pests. Uh, things like mint. Mint is a very good repellent of pests. So, But if you put mint in your garden, your, your cure is worse than a disease and it will go invasive on you. But filling up a flower pot or two with some, uh, some peppermint or spearmint and placing that in your garden and leaving it in that pot, those types of things will do wonders to keep the, the, the beneficial population of insects and critters up and the negative critters down to a large degree. And if you practice crop rotation on top of that, the next thing you know, you're having one of those huge, gorgeous gardens that everybody seems to be growing but you. But it all starts with your soil. I guess another thing I'm going to talk about very, very briefly today is testing your soil. This was a test that I often skipped, and as long as my results were good, I didn't worry about it. This year I tested my soil in one of my beds that was lackluster, and even though I worked a lot of organic matter into the soil and things like that, I found it to be highly deficient in nitrogen, uh, and I would have never guessed that that soil would have been nitrogen deficient. I'm not sure what happened, but it did, and now I know how to, exactly how to correct it. Um, and these t- soil test kits are 10 12 bucks for one that will test your pH, your nitrogen, uh, your phosphorus, and your potassium. I'm not going to go deep into fertilization today. Just know that don't skip that step. Know your soil's pH. Know it's nitrogen, phosphorus, and uh, potassium content. And then consult uh, a manual whenever you're planting a given crop. And if things aren't right, adjust it accordingly. Now, the beautiful thing about raised beds is let's say you're growing some plants that are going to do best at like a soil pH of about a 6, a little bit acidic. And then you're growing some plants that are going to grow best at a soil pH of a 7. Rather than try to adjust everything, you can adjust the beds for the right uh, crops to the right pH level, the right nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium levels. So that's another advantage to raised beds. It's part of why I recommend them so highly, and I think they do so much better of a job because you end up with this deep soil. I want you to think about this too. Without turning the subsoil, just by breaking it up uh, 8 inches deep, which is about the average length of a good garden fork, um, you've created 8 inches of depth that roots can go down into, that micronutrients can be extracted from, uh, and that can become part of the environment for the roots of your plants. When you then build up another 8 inches of compost and topsoil and continue to mulch and add organic matter, you now end up with 16 inches of depth. If you don't do raised beds, it would take an awful lot of effort uh, to get 16 inches of depth available as an ecosystem for the roots of your plants. With raised beds, it's a relatively easy thing to do. And when you have 16 inches of depth, you can actually plant your your plants a lot closer together. When you plant your plants closer together, they provide more shade to the soil. They provide more shade to the soil, they keep it cooler in the summertime, and they slow down evaporation, and they handle the heat and the drought a lot better. So you can see how this whole thing is holistic. If you look at it from the very beginning and you think about deep, wide 
raised beds. And if you don't go too wide and you don't have to walk in there, you never compact the soil. And I've seen beds that, you know, that have been in existence for five or six years this way that you can literally just plunge your hand into almost up to your elbow uh, without doing any working of the soil at all just because of how the soil's been treated, how the organics matter's been added, how it's been turned into the first couple layers, the good uh, nematode and, and earthworm activity that's going on. Uh, all of those things together combine to make exceptional soil and those make exceptional gardens. Keep it with the theme of winter gardening though. Let's say that you're, you're going to go ahead and you're going to dig your bed for the winter and you want to use it right now. What do you have to do differently than what I described? Don't put your sod down there. Don't, don't put sod under soil that you plan on growing in right away because when it starts to break down, it's going to rob the soil of nutrients and it also has a tendency to heat up and it can burn roots. So if you're, if you're going to plant immediately, take your sod, uh, maybe use it for a bare patch to replace some grass or throw it in the compost heap and compost it and use it for composting next year. Otherwise, you do the same thing. If you already have beds prepared that you just improved for the fall uh, or, or something like that, now you're going to plant. Well, how, how are some ways that we've discussed already and some other ways to get plants through the winter, especially in some of the milder climates? Well, as I talked about, there's this springhouse place that I've, I've, I'm going to go ahead and order this greenhouse for this from this weekend, uh, but they also have these row houses. Well, these row houses are kind of expensive if you have a lot of rows of plants, and one of the things you can do, and this was pointed out by a poster on the forum or uh, on the blog, is just simply set up some supports and go get some good clear plastic, builder's plastic, and uh, lay it over the top and you know weight it down with rocks. And that's not as aesthetically pleasing. And if your wife's like my wife, she might go, I don't like the way that looks, and you'll you know you maybe you'll have to do something a little bit more organized. But that absolutely will work perfectly well. The other thing you can do is on the nights that it's going to be freezing temperatures, uh, right before nighttime, fill up a couple milk jugs with hot water. This was all the same guy suggested this, and it's a great old trick, and I forgot all about it, and I'll give it to you now. You fill up milk jugs with hot water, put the caps on them, stick them under those tents. They'll help keep the temperature above freezing for a long time. If you have a greenhouse, you can take this to another level. Get a big old 55-gallon water drum so for saving extra water anyway. Paint it black. Put it inside the greenhouse in an area where it's going to get hit heavily with sun and fill it with water. All day long when the sun's hitting that greenhouse, it'll be heating up that drum of water. And the radiant heat that comes off of that drum after night will help keep your temperature up and you won't have to put a heater or lighting. If you couple that technique with a good 100-watt incandescent bulb at night in your uh, in your greenhouse, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to keep temperatures at least right at freezing, even where they go well below, and most of your plants will do well. Another thing I didn't tell you, if you, you, you really, in the wintertime in your greenhouses, you want to give your plants the minimal amount of water they need to survive. The more water they have, if your temperatures do go below freezing, the more hydrated their cells are, the more likely those cells are to rupture. And that's what happens when plants die of a frost. It's not because the frost killed them outright just because they were cold. It's because they were they were moist. And when you think about if you take uh, uh, an ice tray and you put it in, most people have electric ice maker, automatic ice makers now, but in the old days you'd fill the tray. 
and you put the ice tray in the freezer, and when you pull it out, the cubes would risen up higher because water expands when it freezes. Where most things contract, water expands. It's the only thing in the world that does that. And if you think about a cell, a cell in a plant is a little tiny case. And if it's highly hydrated, it's full of water. And when you freeze it and the water inside the cell freezes, it expands and it ruptures and bursts the cell, and it causes cell death and the whole plant dies. So that's what kills plants. So if you minimize your watering in the wintertime, you'll have a lot better opportunity to coax your plants through those freezing times. I also want to talk to you real briefly about another way to use greenhouses. It's maybe a little bit different than what a lot of people do. Many people, you set up a greenhouse, you put shelves in there, you put your plants on your shelves, and you just kind of go to town with your greenhouse, and then you grow everything in containers. Well, there's nothing wrong, especially with kind of a portable greenhouse that can be moved, with building raised beds, and then placing your greenhouse over top of those beds, growing your plants directly in the ground, and uh, maybe running through a winter harvest, and then prepping your beds, and then once you're getting ready for spring, starting your plants maybe in containers, and then moving them and make the greenhouse basically a giant cold frame, and put all the plants that you're going to start for that year that maybe need a little bit of a head start, a little bit of extra protection, into the ground, inside the greenhouse, uh, until they get a good start, and then when you're ready, put your greenhouse away for the summer if you don't keep your greenhouse out in the summer, or move it somewhere else if you use it kind of as a shaded growing system in the summer. And then your plants are already in the ground, they're in the soil that they had, maybe for a couple days you use it like a cold frame, as I said, and instead of just removing the whole greenhouse, you open all the vents, you let the plants deal with the elements, still somewhat protected, and uh, then you remove your greenhouse. That is a great way, especially with these new portable greenhouses, uh, to, uh, to maximize what you're doing, and you just have to think about the footprint of those greenhouses when you're building your beds, and build maybe a combination two beds with a walk space in between of them so that you can go inside. You could probably even set up some shelves uh, at the end of that row or even around the edges of that row for doing your plant starting for your other rows and still do gardening in the ground. And uh, with the price of these greenhouses, they're not that expensive. It, it would be conceivable that over time you might even set up a situation where you have several of these little greenhouses where you grow stuff in the ground throughout the year. Everything's up to you, but that's just a different idea I had since I started evaluating these uh, things. Now, kind of one of the last little uh, things I wanted to uh, give you kind of a tip with is... Let's say you just do all your prep uh, through the winter. You don't really grow outside or even in a greenhouse or whatever. Or maybe grow in a greenhouse, but you don't put anything in your beds uh, through the winter. You just get them ready for spring. When the early part of spring starts to roll around, you're not quite ready to put stuff in the ground yet, but you want to give the soil a chance to kind of warm up and get ready to be worked and uh, get a head start on that. What you can do is remove that protective layer of newspaper and straw or other mulch uh, that we talked about uh, as the sun starts to really warm the ground. Put down a layer of black tarp or black plastic or something like that, which will absorb the heat. Uh, that will heat up the surface. It will start to break down a lot of the organic matter that made it through the winter for you uh, and get that deep into your soil. And uh, if you do that for a couple weeks before you plant, you'll find that your soil is nice and warm uh, when you go to put those little plants in there. You'll want to do what you need to do to make sure that uh, the frost threat is over and that it's going to stay warm, but it will warm it up faster and it will get the activity inside the soil going quicker uh, that will lead to a much better situation for your plants. 
Uh, the last thing I want to talk a little bit about is uh, is just simple frost blankets in the in the uh, in the winter time. And these things come in different layers and different levels of protection from things that are very thin that basically just keep frost off the plant, even though it's going to be easily frozen underneath. And the only problem you have with them is that the thicker and more protective they are, the less light they allow through. So you kind of need to do a balancing act with that. If they're going to be something you put on the plants in the evening uh, when there's still a little bit of sun to warm them up and uh, take them off uh, in the late at, you know, late morning, early afternoon and let the sun hit them uh, for most of the day because you don't have freezing temperatures during to the day, uh, you're a little less concerned with that. But again, you need a little less protection. So it's a balancing act. But frost blankets are nothing special. They're made out of lightweight material. Uh, they're usually pretty easy to deploy and they're very inexpensive and right now most home depots and Lowe's and things like that have them for sale. I'll give you a little tip that I picked up from a book and I cite the author's name but I just can't remember it right now but I've used it and it works quite well uh, to make your frost blankets really easy to deploy and store. What you need to do is get uh, some nice long thin pieces of strips of wood, you know, maybe one by one or one by two stuff and you'll need four of them. And what you do is you set your frost blanket, maybe cut it if you need to, to the dimensions that you want specifically for covering your raised bed. And along the long edge, uh, staple the frost blanket to one piece of the wood, one strip of wood. Then kind of put the second piece of wood over it like a sandwich. You can use lattice for this. It doesn't have to be heavy wood, all right? The lighter, the better, actually. Put that other piece over like it and sandwich it, and then nail those two with nails that won't be long enough to go through the second one together. Do that on the other long edge. So what you'll have almost, if you had two people holding the edge, would look like a really sloppy, deep stretcher, right, for carrying guys off a battlefield. And you lay that over your garden, put some supports in there if you need to, some stakes or uh, PVC props or whatever to keep it from laying too heavily against your plants, and you lay that on both sides, and then maybe you put some weight on the ends and the, and the sides, make sure it's big enough to cover, completely cover, no air gaps, your bed. Now, the nice thing about this, why do you bother with these strips of wood? One, it'll make it stretch out nice uh, for you. It'll make it really easy to, to put them on by yourself. But when you're putting them away, you just grab one end and roll it up uh, like a tube. And uh, that way they store really easy. They don't get all matted up. Uh, it'll keep them nice and, uh, and, and straight for you. For you know, It'll be easy to put them on. So on that night where you go, ah, it might freeze tonight, but I think the plants will be okay. I don't feel like doing it. And since it's easier, you're going to be more likely to do it. Uh, and since they'll store well, you won't have to buy new ones as often. They'll last a lot more seasons for you. Uh, so it's a little bit of extra work today to do a lot less extra work tomorrow. Uh, and that's kind of my final tip on winter, winners for gardening three. And uh, we'll go into some different subjects next week. Uh, you can bet we will talk about the election and uh, the impending doom that I feel about the outcome that I expect. Uh, but right now, let's just be positive. Let's start thinking about growing uh, that Patriot Garden this uh, winter or this spring and the things we can do now to make a better garden uh, whenever it is that you're going to actually put plants in the ground. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It doesn't matter cause it all gets spent